0: It won't be very long, but that was not in reference to my sermon. Uh, no, I'm I'm kidding, of course. It's really good to be back with everyone. We've had a great day, had a good singing last night. Uh, I'm thankful for y'all's presence and making it back out for the two thirty service. Uh, over the course of today, uh, the first two sermons we had, we talked a lot about growth in different areas. And the first thing we talked about was growth in my Bible knowledge this morning in Bible class. We talked about different areas in our lives which we could increase our Bible knowledge, different ways that we could implement Bible knowledge into our lives, etc. And then we talked about growth in resisting temptation by talking about Christ's temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Satan's always on the prowl. He's always trying to get to us. So, watching Christ resist temptation aided us in our ability to resist temptation. And then right now we're going to be talking about growth in my personal evangelism, as Kyle was saying earlier. You know, when I was a kid, my parents would have a hard time getting me to clean my room. I just did not like to do it. I liked to keep it messy. And it took a long time to clean my room sometimes. And it was a hard job because I had stuff all over the place. And maybe you were the same way. And maybe your room looked a little like mine. This isn't exactly my room, but sometimes this is what it looked like. I mean, man, it was messy. And mom or dad, the dad would come, he'd say, you need to clean your room. He'd give me that command To clean my room. The command was clear. Clean the room. So what if I did the following? What if I'm in my room and I I go tell all of these people about my room needing to be cleaned? And I even bring them in and we sit there we talk about what we're going to do in order to clean the room. What we're going to do to have it all nice and clean for my dad. And they see how nasty the room is. We gather once a week and we talk about what am I going to do to clean this room. And then they leave, and my dad comes in, and it's still dirty. Now, what do you think he's going to say? Why didn't you clean your room? But I'll look at him and say, well, Dad, we got together once a week, and we talked about cleaning my room. We made all kinds of plans on how we were going to do it. We were going to actually do it, but we never did. Dad's going to say, well, yeah, you never actually did it. You know, a lot of times, this is how we see evangelism and personal evangelism. We gather everyone together once or twice a week. We talk about how we need to go out and we need to preach the gospel. But we don't actually do it. We just talk about it. This afternoon, I want us to think about our current efforts in talking to others about the gospel. And first, I think it's important to understand what this word even means to the New Testament Christian. Uh, First off, I just want to read Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, this was given to the disciples, But it was also, or to the apostles, it's also given to us as well. The actual word evangelism in the Greek word actually means the gospel or good news. Good news being spread. The verb itself is to announce or proclaim or to bring the good news to others. I think that's important to understand. This word is used in reference to the preacher or the evangelist in the work that he does. In Ephesians 4 and verse 11, it's known as a work. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. This is a work that someone would do for the Lord's church. Acts 21 and verse 8, we learned about Philip the evangelist. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. This is what he was known for, to go out and to proclaim the good news. Also, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 5, Timothy is urged in his work as a young evangelist, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. This word itself, meaning bringing good news, captures the meaning of what a man or woman, a Christian, is called to do. This word is used in many different lights in the Bible. And it's used in reference to the work of the church, yes. But it's also used in reference to the individual Christian. The individual Christian and what they ought to do. I want to start, though, I want to start by looking at it as a mission of the church, something that the Lord's church is told to do in the New Testament. So we'll do just that. The church has authority to send some out. Turn your Bibles over to Acts chapter 13. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. I want us to read this passage. We're actually going to read it twice. We'll just read it once the first time for what it says, and then I'm going to uh, put some thoughts out there, and we'll read it again, and I think you'll, you'll see what I'm trying to take away. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Okay, I want to notice a couple of things. We see here that Saul, of course, that's Paul and Barnabas, were sent out by the church at Antioch. Yes, the Holy Spirit said set them apart, but who actually sent them out? You see, it was the church at Antioch. You go over to Acts chapter 14. began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they would spent a long time with the disciples. We see them coming back, Paul and Barnabas coming back, talking to Antioch about the things that they were doing after the church at Antioch sent them away. Of course, this is what we refer to Paul's as Paul's first missionary journey. Now, these men were set apart for the work they recall them, but I want us to notice that the church here prayed for this endeavor. Now, I think that's a huge thing. This church prayed for that endeavor. I think that's huge to be praying for men's current efforts in evangelism. I know at Oberlin, once a, once a year, we have a prayer service, and we just focus it solely on the guys we support. Kyle is actually one of those. And if I'm not mistaken, one of our deacons got a hold of Kyle and asked him for the things to pray about, for the work here. And we would pray about all these men that we were supporting. And I think that's a good thing. It's a Bible example. We're praying to God about the evangelism that they're doing. But I want to point something out. Paul and Barnabas were being sent out to the church to evangelize, to spread the gospel. They were not being sent out for any other reason than that. And you'll find many different places sending men out to do things other than spread the gospel. But the pattern we have is sending men out and supporting them in their work to spread the gospel. Not clean up after storms and and things like that. Now, those things are good. Those things need to be done. But the church is sending these men out to evangelize. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. We'll come back to Acts 13 in a moment. Ephesians 3 and verse 10. <laughs> and for context's sake, we might back up a little bit. Ephesians chapter 3, go back to verse 8. It says to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Look at this phrasing. In verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That really stood out to me, that the wisdom of God is being made known through the churches in verse 10. So how else are we to do this but to evangelize the good news as the church, that is the Lord's people in a locality? think that's important to do. A church finding opportunities to go together and spread the gospel. Whether it be door knocking, whether it be anything, a church going out and making the manifold wisdom of God made known to people that is the church. Much good is going to be done when we have a church working together for that common goal. Local churches were the only medium in which missionary organizations existed. There's a lot of places today, um, a lot of institutional places, things like that, that have decided to send the church's funds to some organization that then uses that money and other money sent from other churches to go take out things and for people to be missionaries. And the, get, or the water gets muddied when we start getting into all that. But it's not all that nasty. The water's not all that nasty when you really just see what the Bible says. When you look at examples like, for instance, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, turn your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians 11. We'll go through a couple of these. We see exactly how this is to work. 2 Corinthians 11, in verse 8, Paul says, bragging about the Macedonians, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you, and when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. Paul says to the Corinthians, Macedonians were taking care of my needs in the work, that I needed to do. And you see a few more examples if you want to jot those down. And we see that this was a work of the local church, not an organization. And the church here at Lake Street has sent Kyle out to go out and spread the gospel. He is the evangelist here that is going to do that work. He's supported to do that work. But that is being said, what sometimes happens, when we're paying an evangelist, to evangelize and do the work that we find in the New Testament like we just went over, what sometimes happens? Well, sometimes this happens. I pay the preacher to evangelize for me since I don't have time. That might be something we hear every now and then, or it might be something we think or might be tempted to think. So my question is then, when in Acts 13 and other places, when the church was sending out other people to go evangelize, what were the churches doing back home? Go back over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Uh, And actually, we'll start off in Acts chapter 20. Go over to Acts chapter 20. Let's look at verse 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. It says, uh, Paul says uh, to the the farewell to Ephesus, How did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house? Paul wasn't just behind the pulpit, he was also sitting or going out and talking to people about the gospel. You know what, when you go back over to Acts chapter 13 and you look at that example of the people at Antioch sending off Paul and Barnabas to the work that they are called, I think a lot of times we read that and we think that the church sent Paul and Barnabas off to do the work and then the church just sits on their hands until they come back to hear what Paul and Barnabas did. Do we really think that's what the church at Antioch was doing? No, I don't believe so. I don't think they were sitting idle. I don't think they were sitting on their hands. They were going out, they were spreading the gospel in their local area and their community while Paul and Barnabas were out doing this work. Paul went, as we see here, from house to house as well as publicly. Paul was not merely evangelizing, standing behind a pulpit and never leaving it. Granted, you know, 30 to 50 years ago, gospel meetings would normally result In several baptisms, that's the kind of thing that would be great. I even looked up uh, H.E. Phillips. He wrote in Truth Magazine. Just follow this quote with me. He said, during the 1930s and 1940s, gospel meetings would often span three Sundays and sometimes go through the third Wednesday evening. These long meetings resulted from increasing interest as they continued. I remember several meetings in which I preached in the Middle 40s and through the 50s that would continue a week or more beyond the date advertised to close the interest continued to mount and both churches and preachers were eager to continue how could one stop an effort when from 1 to 12 came to be baptized every night and several were restored to the Lord each night now I know a lot of us here some of you here remember this dime where there would be two or three week long gospel meetings I can't I can't name that I can't remember one going longer than a week that's the generation we're in now, there's a couple ways to look at that. Obviously, there was something going on here. Something was happening. This was working. It was working well. The fact that there were multiple baptisms and multiple people being restored to the Lord, something was working here. So what was it? Well, Brother Philip's testimony concerning the amount of baptisms and restorations are unheard of. Why don't we get that anymore? Kyle and I knocked on about 80 doors yesterday. Eighty and handed out flyers, and no one came. Was that fruitless? Did that not work? Well, I believe the reason why gospel meetings are not producing results like this anymore, and I think it does lie within our society, and no, it's not an excuse, and no, I'm not trying to say it's a bad thing, but rather it's of utmost importance that we recognize the change in our culture as to why not many people might come to gospel meetings and adjust to that according to Scripture's. You think about it, in the 1930s to the 50s, people relied on their neighbors for everything. They were cont- uh, constantly interacting with other people in denominations even, and they were always becoming closer with those who were outside of the Lord's body. Well, with this being said, it wasn't all that uncommon for those close friends that were not members of the church when they found out that their Christian friends were having a gospel meeting or a, rev- a revival of some kind. Well, they'd come along. A lot of them would come along from the community in a tent meeting, and they would hear a gospel sermon and feel compelled to make changes in their lives once and for all, and that's how you would get these kind of results. But by getting them in the church building was the key. Getting those friends and neighbors in the church building. And this is where I think their society is different today. It's hard to get just about anyone to step into a church building anymore. Then some might try and find multiple excuses as to why we can't get people into the church building. And I think that's irrelevant. That's not at all why I'm talking about this. Instead of saying gospel meetings are not effective anymore, well, we know that's not true, but they're effective for us in our growth as a congregation, we ought to use other approaches to spreading God's word according to the scripture. According to the scripture. Yes, there are, uh, the gospel meetings are effective for us, but we cannot neglect other ways to spread the gospel. We cannot just rely on gospel meetings. And we need to adapt to this. We need to learn how to go from house to house effectively. Let me emphasize that word, effectively, so we can bring others to Christ, just as Paul did here in Acts 20, verse 20. He's going publicly and from house to house. Well, take a moment. We'll just talk about evangelism can be kind of awkward sometimes. It can be uncomfortable. It wasn't that long ago, I was in, in North Carolina with a friend of mine that preaches down there. And we were door knocking, and his approach to door knocking is really cool. It works down there. Uh, he doesn't invite them to church. He doesn't invite them to a meeting. He simply knocks on the door and asks them to read the Bible with him. That's what he does, asks them to just read the Bible. One in four times down there in North Carolina, it actually was working. Well, there's one time Andy and I were, were walking around, and Andy knocks on this door, and this lady opens the door, and she doesn't speak any English. She speaks Spanish only. And she looks at Andy, and he's trying to talk to her, and she says, I don't speak English. That's the only word she could say. And Andy didn't really know what to say, because in that part of North Carolina, that was kind of unrare, and he just kind of stumbled and said, well, I don't speak any English either. And she shut the door, and we walked away. And I said, Andy, did you just tell that lady you don't speak any English? He said, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't realize He felt awkward. He was uncomfortable. He's been doing this 20 years, but yet he still was uncomfortable in the moment. It's not going to be an easy thing. It's not. We were never promised that the living life of a Christian would be easy in the first place. So why would bringing others to Christ be an easy thing? It's simply not going to be. We've got to be willing to step out of our comfort zone, do something we've not done before to have someone hear the gospel. But I want us to examine this thought of doing it effectively, as I said earlier. You know, some people don't do it effectively, going from house to house. Many times, some of our brethren want to jump to the woe-to-you Pharisees approach. You know, it's interesting to me about that. Jesus didn't say woe-to-you Pharisees until later in the book of Matthew. He spent a lot of time being patient with people and talking to them patiently and trying to get them to understand before he jumped down their throats. We want to yell, make a big scene. It's not all that uncommon. Today. If you might have been on a college campus to see somebody... Uh, with the caution tape around him, sitting there yelling at people about how they're going to go to hell and things like that. And I ran into an instance like that once. And I, there was this guy sitting on the side, and I asked him, "What is this going to do?" Because that kind of an approach to spreading the gospel not only lacks sense, but it lacks something else that's huge that the Bible talks about in our approach to others. It lacks love. Look over with me at First Corinthians chapter sixteen. First Corinthians chapter 16 and verse four, or 14, First Corinthians 16 and verse 14. <clears throat> Pretty simple passage. It says, "Let all that you do be done in love." You know, we must have a love for all people in some sense. I think about Jesus in Mark 10. The the Lord was asked by this young man what he needed to do. What did he need to do in order to follow Christ? And Jesus, of course, said that you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor. And at one point it says Jesus looked at him with love or felt a love for him. This young man sincerely knew that. Others need to see that same kind of love of Christ in us before we even try to talk to them about the gospel. See that we care about them and care about their well-being. And for the remainder of the sermon, I want us to examine several scriptures that can help us in our personal evangelism. Number one, let's examine 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn your Bibles over there. You should be close to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and in our influence of righteous living. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of christ cared for by us written not with ink but the spirit of the living god not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts this is probably the one that convicts me the most this idea that we are letters of christ being read by those outside the body of christ we need to live in such a way we need to act in such a way where we will remain faithful so others may also see what it means to be a child of God. I mean, think about this analogy. Paul says here, you are a letter of Christ. People are reading you for what you are. And you are not, it says, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You know, when I was traveling uh, Several months ago, I'd never been on an airplane before, and I was going with a group. And I'd never been on a plane. We got in the airport at one point, and I got lost. And I was pretty scared. I didn't know where my group was. And so the first thing I did is I looked around, and I found someone with a, with a uniform on, and I knew they worked at the airport, and I went straight to them, and they were able to tell me exactly where I needed to go. And I was so thankful for them. Didn't want to miss my flight, didn't want to miss my group. So thankful for them. So I could get to my destination, I needed that person that I knew worth there. Do we see the obvious application? The gospel is the same way. If people are reading us as the letter of Christ, they will know that we're the person that they need to go to to learn where or how they can go to heaven as well. But, you know, I think sometimes we camp behind verses like this. And we think, well, I'll just be a good person. And while I'm at work, I won't curse I won't go drinking with everybody and things like that. And then sure enough, someone will finally come up to me and they'll ask me why I don't do those things. Well, I don't think it's going to happen. Because I've been been—I've worked in the secular field. With, I'm sure a lot of you have. It's not always the case. We need to speak words. They need to know why I don't drink, why I don't curse along with them, etc. We cannot just sit there and expect them to come to us and camp behind that as an excuse. Turn your Bibles over to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5. Uh, another yet another one of my favorite passages in regard to evangelism. Uh, Colossians chapter 4 and uh, verse 5. <clears throat> it says conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, this goes hand in hand with that idea of doing it effectively, going house to house effectively, talking to people about the gospel effectively. The idea of letting your speech always be with grace, knowing what you're saying. Don't just throw words out there. Think before you speak. But most importantly, verse 5, the way you conduct yourself, make the most out of that opportunity. We have to see opportunities, and you know a lot of times we can pray to the Lord about creating opportunities for us to spread the gospel. But a lot of it is me learning how to open my eyes towards opportunities, learning to see when someone when we need to go ahead and take the initiative to talk to somebody about Christ. Not that long ago, well, there's a, a few camp T-shirts I have that have scripture on it, and I was walking through Walmart. And as I was leaving, someone said, I like your t-shirt. And I said, Thank you. And I got in my car, started driving away, thinking, Wow, they must be big UK fans. Well, I wasn't wearing a UK shirt, I was wearing something with the Bible or something. I, I'd missed out on an opportunity. I could have talked to them about that and asked them, you know, if they went to church anywhere, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. We need to be on the constant lookout for opportunities. There's a lot of New Testament examples of evangelism and their work. Turn over to First Peter chapter two. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. I actually had a, a good friend of mine point this passage out to me. It was very helpful to me. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. <clears> 1 <throat> Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. And envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It's a very interesting passage to me. It refers to the word of the Lord as newborn babies longing for that milk, so you can grow in respect to salvation. But I think verse three wraps it up well. Yeah, that only means anything to you. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It gives that if you statement. You know, often we go to this verse to talk about the what we need to have for God's word. Like newborn babies longing for the milk. And that's right. But what about that last part? It says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. I'm here to submit to you. If you've been baptized, you've had your sins washed away. You've tasted the kindness of the Lord. You understand the grand scheme of redemption that you were lost in your sins. You were a nobody without Christ, and when you accepted him and you did what he said in order to receive salvation, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's something you have now. Now, how would, why would Peter say that? Why would he say that? Well, think about this. If you've tasted something sweet, I don't know about you all, I want to share it with somebody. If my grandmother makes me a strawberry cake, or something I just absolutely love, I want to share it with somebody that will also enjoy it. Is that not what the gospel is? The good news, something great? Shouldn't that be our want to pass it along and have others share it? It absolutely is. It's absolutely our responsibility. Turn your Bibles over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We find another example of New Testament evangelism, in particular, John chapter 1, in verse 40. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Do you see the urgency that Andrew had here to tell his brother, I have found the Messiah? And you know something I've noticed? Disagree with me if you'd like. Those of us who might have been raised in the church, opposed to those who came to Christ later in their lives... Sometimes the people that came to Christ later in their lives have a greater appreciation or have a greater desire to go out and tell others about it. Well, yeah. Why is that? Well, it's because they were so lost for so long that they wanted to go out and tell everybody. They didn't want everybody else to be lost like they were. And I think that's something we need to learn from. This is how we need to see it. We found the Messiah. And sometimes when we are, quote, unquote, raised in the church, That is a mentality we get in. This is just something I've had my whole life. And we don't feel that urgency to go out and tell people that we have learned about the Messiah. We need to make sure we do. This man says, I have found the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he goes and he tells others about that. What about the woman at the well? Go back over to John chapter 4 or just a couple chapters over in John chapter 4. The woman at the well, pick up with me. Uh, There in verse 21, Jesus responding to her about where they would be worshiping. He said, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with the woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the man, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. A lot of the reason is that phrase we get in verse 28. So the woman left her water pot. Just that idea. She she dropped everything to go tell everybody about the Messiah. Uh, I think that's just an amazing picture, the idea. She dropped everything to go tell everyone about the Messiah that she found. Suppose that you're a doctor, and there was a disease that everybody had. Even their symptoms, they might have been different. Everybody who caught the disease, though, that they were going to die. This disease was going to kill everybody. Let's also say that you're skilled enough or I'm skilled enough to treat this disease and that we have found the cure to uh, to cure this disease. What would you say about a doctor who had the cure to this disease but would not share the solution with anybody? Well, this is the same situation for many of us Christians. The Bible says that the whole world is dead in their sin and trespasses, and if we have met Jesus, we have found the cure. We have. we found the cure. How dare we keep it to ourselves? Rather, we need to be like Andrew. We even need to be like the Samaritan woman and go tell everybody we can. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, share the cure with everybody. And especially, I think we need to think about opportunities like our family. You know, I think a lot of times, especially when we've gone so many years with family members who aren't Christians, it can be easy to just say, well, that's a topic that they're not going for. They don't like talking about it. Maybe we need to be firm about that and start being serious about trying to get them to come to services, trying to set up a study with them, trying to do something to get them to come to the Lord. Because sometimes it can be easy to just say, well, they're never going to come. We need to be more diligent. They're our family, we want them to be saved. Turn your Bibles lastly to First Corinthians chapter nine. First Corinthians chapter 9, uh, our last uh, way to evangelize, First Corinthians chapter 9. look with me in verses 19 through 23. Paul here uh, in First Corinthians talking to the brethren here, I believe gives a good insight on what he's willing to do for a soul to be saved. First Corinthians nine Verse 19, it says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. And to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul went through great lengths to help in the conversion of a soul. And there's some things out there that we might not find effective. For instance, door knocking. And we might think, well, there's no way that that's going to work. At the end of the day, what Kyle and I did yesterday, even if nobody came, that name, the name of the church is out there. We had good conversations with people. And I think door knocking is just a very effective way to do it just by simply asking them to read the Bible with you or just being anywhere and asking someone to read the Bible. Someone will take you up on that. You can establish a relationship with people over time. This idea of Paul, you know, being all things to all men. I don't by any means think that this is an excuse for sin, like like some might teach. But becoming friends with people in the world. Show them that you love them. Help them do their garden, do their work, etc. Do something to connect with these people to show them the love of Christ. And we might have to sacrifice time and effort for that. You know, like we talked about in our Bible class this morning, set aside time in order to study our Bibles and to become better Bible students. Maybe we need to start setting aside time, developing a game plan on what I'm going to do to reach out to those who need the gospel. Maybe that's something we need to do. There's one other verse I want to look at tonight. Turn your Bibles over to the book of Jude, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 23. The book of Jude. And look at verse 20 with me. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. We are the ones commissioned to snatch others out of the fire. Have you ever had to snatch something before? What does what the term snatch even mean? Well, the idea is, if you snatch something, it's typically for urgency's sake. And we're called here to snatch others out of the fire. We see the urgency behind it, pulling them out. You all remember the hymn, You never mentioned him to me? That song steps on my toes just about every time. It paints a picture of being in heaven on judgment day, or being there on judgment day, waiting in line, and someone turning around and looking at you and saying, You never mentioned him to me. Are others going to be disappointed with you and I on the day of judgment because of our lack of commitment in showing them to Christ? Well, that's the sermon. Perhaps you are not a child of God tonight. Then you have not begun the beautiful journey in showing others to Christ in the first place. It is important that you yourself become in a right relationship with God. Come to Him and in believing in Him, repenting of your sins and being baptized. Or if you just simply would like to ask more questions about that, talk to Kyle about that. We'd love for you to do so. And if you are a child of God tonight, maybe this is a command that you've been neglecting and you need help. We'd love to pray with you or just in your life in general. You need prayers here of the saints. We would love to help you in any way. Won't you come now as we stand and as we sing?